can't believe he said my middle name. <laughs> That's all right. I don't know about you, but I am happy to be here. Amen. There are many places where we could be this morning, but the Lord saw fit for us to be here safe and sound. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're here once again <clears throat> in your house on your day. Father, we have the right place and we have the right day. Father, we ask that you give us the right person this morning. As we open up your word, help us to see it in a new and special way. Take away the internal blockages that exist for whatever reason so we can receive the word of God. In your son's name we do pray. Amen. Tim Tebow celebrated his birthday this week. He turned 25 Tuesday, August 14th. And there's still hope, ladies. He's Christian and he's single. <laughs> Tim Tebow, he attended the University of Florida, he, where he won two championships in 2006 and 2008. In 2007, he won 28 awards, including the Heisman Trophy Award. That year, in 2010, he was drafted by the Denver Broncos in the first round with the 25th pick. People thought they were crazy. He took America on a ride in 2011 when he won eight straight games. People thought it was the hand of God. And he even took us on a ride in the playoffs when he beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in overtime with the 80-yard touchdown pass. But when he was traded to the New York Jets in the, in the 2012 offseason, we thought that he would just go away. Ah, uh, that's not the case. He is one of the most popular athletes on the planet, not for his football capabilities or, or the lack thereof, if you ask me, but for his faith. Tim Tebow is a Christian. He wears his religion on his sleeve. While he was at Florida, his eye paint, he would write in the scriptures, John 3.16. You can even find him what, what they call Tebowing, that is, praying on one knee, giving God praise on the football field. Tim Tebow, he's often ridiculed on sports radio and comedy shows for wearing his faith on his sleeve. They want him to fail. They actually have gambling lines upon an over-under on a date of when he'll lose his virginity. They want him to fail. They tweet and take pictures of all of the young women that are around him. They are haters. They say it's his faith. It's his church. It's his religion. They don't seem to understand that what he is professing isn't a secondary sourced faith, but a primary sourced faith where God is involved in his everyday life. For Tim Tebow, God is the centerpiece of his life upon which everything else is arranged. I submit to you this morning that true transformation comes when our religion and our spirituality goes from an intellectual faith to an individualized faith. And we're gonna see how in a message entitled, It's Personal, It's Personal. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, I'll read the first two verses in your hearing. I'm reading from the King James Version of the Bible, but it's also on the screen in the New King James Version. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. 
And the Bible says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The children of Egypt are like my work cell phone. A phone that you have to cut off in a meeting because it's not a smartphone. It doesn't have airplane mode. We have to cut it off. Sometime it doesn't even ring because it's out of range. It's a cheap flip phone. Verizon, by the way. There might be hours or days where I won't pick up the phone or even turn it on. But as soon as I hit the power button and I turn it on, about 60 seconds later, I get three email messages, 46 tweets, 14 messages, and 14 Facebook messages. Israel has been out of range for 490 years. And they got reception at the Passover. They switched to 3G when they were trapped at the Red Sea. And now they upgraded to 4G at, at Mount Sinai. They were out of range in Egypt, and they thought that God didn't see them. They thought that God had forgotten them. But he began to tweet in secret in chapter 1. He sent some text messages in chapter 2. And he sends an email to Moses in chapter 3. And he CCs the elders of Israel. And they finally get the memo in chapter 4 when the Bible says, When they hear that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, the Bible says they bowed down in worship. They finally got the message. Aren't you glad that God communicates with us when we're out of range? He's been sending messages all of the time, and by the time we realize it when we're back in range, we think that we're actually returning the call when we get on our knees in prayer and worship, but he's been sending messages all along. The song says, God's mercy kept me so I wouldn't let go. I'm here today because he kept me. We're alive only because of his grace. When we're out of range, he still sends messages. Thank God for his messages when we're out of range. And now that the children of Israel are in range, verse 1 says God speaks all of these words. God breaks through all of the silence of generations of slavery. And generations not of just slavery, hear me, but a systemized slave mentality. Their slave mentality has been inflicted upon them by the Egyptians until it becomes self-inflicted that would plague them now here in the wilderness. They were made to work seven days a week making brick without straw. They had to work 18-hour days in the hot sun without a break, without lunch, without benefits, without overtime pay and still have the same productivity. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would have revolted and started a mutiny. I don't do well in heat and humidity, that's why I came here to California. And you're making it harder for me to achieve my productivity. If I had time to preach this morning, I would tell you that if you are on a job where you are expected to reach a quota without the assistance to do so, then you are being oppressed. If I had time to preach, I would tell you that if you are salary or hourly, God sees the injustice of the work burdens that weigh you down when you can barely feed your family and pay your bills and can barely prepare for God's day, trying to make bricks without straw. 
they were oppressed by Pharaoh. Not only did they have to make bricks without straw, but they were symbolized in a burning bush in the desert that burned, but it didn't burn up. Never mind that they are a favored people due to the presence of Joseph just a few generations before, where God used Joseph to save the Egyptian kingdom from famine. And Egypt prospered because of the presence of the descendants of Jacob. But the record says the more they oppressed them, the more they suppressed them, the more they repressed them, the Bible says the more they prospered. God is speaking to a favored people. Hear me, they prospered while they were slaves. And if they prospered while they were slaves, you better believe they will become a generation of inventors and innovators. Like I said, if I had time to preach, I would park parenthetically right here and say there are some people on your job and in your life, they've been trying to burn you, trying to push you down and trying to consume you because your presence threatens them because they can't figure you out. They can't figure out how you're a minority and you're blessed, how you're broken, but you're still blessed. God speaks to an enslaved people, but they're favored. I want you to notice two things. God is speaking to them. He doesn't send a fax. He doesn't send a tweet. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send an instant message like before. He shows up in person and speaks. And he says, I am. Two words, not that profound, at least at first glance. I am. We say them every day. How are you doing? I am so-and-so. You can even make I am shorter in the form of a contraction, and it can go from I am to I'm. You're looking at me crazy. I'm Joseph. It's short for I am Joseph. He actually says, I know he in the Hebrew. It's a simple word. I. The am is the to be verb. It's actually not in the text, it's supplied between the first person pronoun I and the subject of the sentence. He says, Anohi, because they speak Hebrew. If they were Spanish, he would say, Yo soy or Yo estoy. If they were French, he would say, Je see. If they were South African, I thought they would say, Ek is. If they were German, he would say, Ich bin. If they were Korean, he would simply say none. If they were Filipino, he would say Anohai. But because they speak Hebrew, he says Anohi, I am. Hear me, God reaches us not only where we are, but he speaks the language that we speak and the language that we can understand. It's first person singular. Why? Because he is a personal God. Meaning that there is nobody else talking to you. All of the voices in your life are hushed because God is speaking. When God speaks into your life, all of the chaos begins to shut down. When God speaks into your life, the entropy in your life begins to be ordered. When God speaks into your life, the darkness separates and the light is set up to govern and order. When God speaks into your life, he speaks in the language that you can understand. Why does he do it? 
because he wants you to understand what he has to say. The psychologists, <laughs> I'm going to get some of you men in trouble. The psychologists say that a woman needs 14 hours a week of affection and communication. Men like to do. Women like to talk. But there is a difference between talking and speaking, just as there's a difference between listening and hearing. And if you are a man, you might, need, you might want to know the difference. For a person who likes to talk, for whatever reason, not talking at worst is a form of abuse. At best is a form of neglect. When it is purposefully done, we say that you are giving the silent treatment or giving the cold shoulder. It's actually a form of passive aggressiveness. We are made for communication. To communicate, we need to use words. And if you can hear, usually you talk. That's why God speaks to me. He wants to communicate. A relationship is a two-way street. God, who am I that you are mindful of me? That you hear me when I call? Is it true that you're thinking of me? That, that you love me? God, you're amazing that you're a personal God. I'm glad that I have a personal God who not only talks, but he speaks. Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 and 33 says, Acts now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings. Acts one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like this ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? He's saying, is there any other people on earth that has heard the voice of God and lived to tell about it? Not only is God speaking, but he's speaking to them on a mountain. Oh, it, it, it's a mountain. It, it's a personal rendezvous. When God brings people to a mountain, it's usually a first-person encounter. It, it's a personal encounter. God brought Abram to a mountain when he told him to sacrifice Isaac. God brought Moses to the mountain when he revealed himself in the burning bush. It was on a mountain when God showed up and showed out for Elijah. It was on a mountain when God would speak to that same prophet in a whisper. It was on a mountain when Moses first saw God. It was on a mountain when he received the plans for the sanctuary. It was on a mountain when he received the tables of stone. And ultimately, it was on a mountain where Moses would die. God, why do you keep bringing people to mountains? It's the first date. He's being romantic. He's bringing them to a special place so they will never forget. Every time they see a mountain, they will think of him because he knows they will forget. It's like in that movie, The Vow, when, where, where the husband dates the wife after she's had a traumatic brain injury due to a crash. And she doesn't know her love story. She doesn't even recognize her husband when she wakes up in the ICU. 
their history, their life, their foundation, all of their emotional attachments are erased due to a traumatic brain injury. But he does not leave her there in the hospital. He actually gives her space. He continues to date her. He is her husband, and he flirts with her. She didn't gain back all of her memories, but she fell in love with her husband again, as if they were strangers meeting for the very first time. He reintroduces himself to her again. You see, Israel has had a subdural hematoma due to the slavery, and they have these cranial hemorrhages due to the Egyptian value systems, and they have forgotten their identity and their purpose. God is reintroducing himself to his people on a first date, and the first words he uses, he says, I am. But not only does he say, I am, he says, Adonai, he says, Anohi Adonai. I, I, I don't know Hebrew preacher, what does that mean? The Hebrews would never put the name of God in the text, Yahweh. In its place, they would put the word Adonai. He is saying, I am the Lord. He could say, I am the self-existent one. Self-existence, it's a unique attribute to God. No other being in the universe can claim to be self-existent. Only God has the ground of existence in himself and is uncreated and completely uncaused. There is no time where he did not exist and never will he cease to exist. A.W. Tozer says he is eternal, which means that he antedates time and is wholly independent of it. Time began in him and will end in him. To it he pays no tribute and from it he suffers no change. God is existence in himself. He says in John 5, 26, for the father has life in himself and he has granted the son to have life in himself. But he doesn't say, I am the self-existent one. He could have said, I am the immutable one. As immutable, God is always who he is and he does not change. He does not change in his beings or in his perfections. He is above all becoming, for there is nothing more for God to become. He does not grow. He does not improve. He does not deteriorate, and he does not decay. He is immutable, which means he has never changed, and he can never change in any smallest measure. To change would mean that he would go from better to worse or from worse to better. He cannot do either because he is perfect. And if he were to become less than perfect or more than perfect, he would be less than God. Simply put, God can't get any better and he cannot get any worse. Psalm 102 says, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth. They perish, but you remain. He could say, I am the indefinite one. As indefinite and infinite, God transcends both space and time, inhabiting all reality and processing the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. The laws of physics do not always apply to God. He is omniscient, which means he knows in one free and effortless present all of the limiting terms that apply to creation and matter does not apply to him. 
And Psalm 139 verse 8 says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell, even there you are there with me. But God doesn't pontificate. He says, I am the Lord your God. Anohi Adonai Elohecha. Your God. Elohecha in the Hebrew. It's second person singular. Wait, 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 wait a minute. He, he's talking to millions of people. Preacher, don't you mean second person plural? You're looking at me crazy. You didn't come to church for a grammar lesson. Verse 2 is not in the singular. When he says, I am the Lord, your God. Your is second person singular. And focusing on the second person singular, the pronoun that's used in the first commandment, the words are directed to each individual person. The, the, the verse could have easily made use of the plural, Elohechem, which means your God plural. But the first commandment was not directed to everybody in a group. God didn't send a mass text message. He is speaking to each individual person. He uses the word Elohecha. While both words can translate your God, the simple switch of the pronoun creates an entirely different relationship. Why? Because it's personal. Each person is hearing him, hearing him as if he is the only one talking and as if they are the only ones listening. Why did he say your God? Pharaoh is dead. Your oppressor is gone. Pharaoh thought he was God. He wants Israel to know that they are saved not because of themselves. He is saying everything you need, everything that you hope for, everything that you cried for, you find it in me. I am your God. I am your hero. I am your deliverer, not Moses. I know you saw the Prince of Egypt and I love the movie and the song, but Moses did not deliver the children of Israel. He said, I am the Lord, your God, not a genie in a bottle, but I am the Lord, your God. Hear me before you think about works. Think about me before you think about obedience. Think about where you were when I found you. You were tossed and driven on the restless sea of time, somber skies and howling tempests. You were often destitute there in Egypt of the things that life demands, wants of food and wants of pleasure, thirsty hills and barren lands. But when God showed up, he gave you water from a rock. When God showed up, that angel that was killing the firstborn passed over your house. When God showed up, when you were stuck between a rock and a hard place, and you were murmuring to Moses to save you, and God made a way out of no way, and you walked through on dry ground, he is saying, don't ever forget where you were when I found you. I did not save you because you were good. I did not save you because you were special. I saved you because I am your God. When did we become professional believers, professional Christians? 
wearing uniforms and being too disciplined for an outrageous and extravagant God? When did rigidity and formality make it into our experience? We actually think that it's all about us. Sometimes you have to fall prostrate in his presence. No sermons, no hymns, no petition, no bills, no needs. Let him be your God. The first thing God says is, I am the Lord, your God. I love general biology when I started it. That actually is the textbook that we used. That was many, 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 many years ago. It's an updated edition. But I loved general biology back at the beginning of my freshman year. By the middle of my freshman year, I did not like general biology. Back when I had the innocence of wonder, back when I was pre-med and wanted to be a nephrologist. Couldn't tell you why, but I wanted to be a nephrologist. I liked kidneys. I love the long Latin names of viruses and plants because they made me sound smart. I don't have a cold, professor. I have streptococcal pharyngitis. I'm not giving you a sunflower. I'm giving you a helianthus anus. Still don't know how to pronounce it. I was exposed to the science of naming, taxonomy. In 1735, Carl Lianus instituted a standardized binomial naming system for plants and animals. I swear he did it to drive biology majors insane. According to the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, to have a new name for something, it involves five main requirements. The first thing that you need to name something, it has to be given a name based upon the 26 letters of the Latin alphabet. Number two, the name given must be unique. The third thing you need is the description must be based upon one name-bearing specimen, something that you can identify when you readily hear it. The fourth thing you need is that in the name, it has to include a reference to the attributes that makes the thing unique. And the fifth thing you need is the first four requirements has to be published in a work that is obtained in numerous identical copies a part of the permanent scientific record. What are you saying, preacher? When God says, I am the Lord your God, he takes the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and he reveals a unique name, but it's also familiar to his people, but it is unique to himself and his character. It is published by the revelation of him speaking, and it is made permanent when it's inscribed on the tables of stone. And to make it even more permanent, he inscribes it on both sides of the table of stone. Simply put, God is giving an oral defense of his title, of his office, but most importantly, his name. He is publishing it orally, then in written form for all generations to see. God is introducing himself to his people, but he's doing it permanently and personally. You see, the patriarchs of Genesis, they did not know God's personal name. In Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15, the Bible says, Moses says to God, 
Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's your name? The God of your fathers has sent me. But when they ask me, what's your name, what do I tell them? And Moses, here God says, I am who I am. The Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton that the Hebrews replaced with Adonai. But when God revealed his name, he says, tell them I am sent you. When they ask you who sent you, just tell them I am has sent you. Whatever you need God to be in the present or the future, he is what you need. In Exodus 6, verse 2, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. You see, so many times we have a borrowed faith from our friends. We have an ascribed faith from our grandparents, an inherited faith from our parents. But God is saying, just like Alicia Keys, how can you say you know me when you don't even know my name? He reintroduces himself to us again, and he wants a personal response. You have to come to the place in your life where it's not a God in the distance, not a plagiarized praise song or the God of your youth. But you have to get to the place where you can say, I've tried him and I know him. I am his and he is mine. Where you tell God, God, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my mother, it's not my father, but I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's like when our kids are tested from their peers to play sports on the Sabbath or by their supervisors to work on Friday evenings. And they look them straight in the eye and say, I don't need to ask permission from my mother. I don't need a letter from my pastor. I'm here trying to make it on my own in Egypt, and I have to be true to my God. Whether you fire me or promote me, it's not business, it's personal. You've already tried to make me make bricks without straw. You've already tried to enslave me. But God has prospered me through it all. Whether you're like Joseph who prospered in Egypt or like his descendants who are slaved in Egypt, God is a personal God. He says, I am the Lord, your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of, out of the house of bondage. He says who he is and what he's done in your life. God is saying, not only did I sign the Emancipation Proclamation and freed the slaves, but I did like Martin Luther King said, where he destroyed the structure that caused slavery. God says, not only am I the author and the director of this thing, y'all just extras. It was a God thing from the beginning. It was my idea before you ever came along. Hear me, you don't have to take yourself so seriously. It's not about your works. As you will learn in a few days when you make the golden calf. I saved you not because of anything that was inside of you. I saved you because of the heart that's inside of me. Matter of fact, 
I predict that you will be stiff-necked and stubborn. I predict that you'll have more subdural hematomas in the future where you can go days without remembering me when you come into my house and you don't even know who I am. It's based upon me being your God, not based upon you being good. You thought that you were a big sinner, but what you did not realize is that I am a bigger savior. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. There were no peacekeepers present. There was no UN council present. There was no multinational coalition of force. I came in person, marched into Pharaoh's house, bound him up and killed him. I killed both the spider and the spider web. There was no one assisting me, no one helping me, no one advising me. I don't need a co-author or co-signer or a co-pilot. I am like your grandmother used to say, I am God all by myself. It's not even about you. Hear me. I'm just keeping a promise I made to your grandparents. <laughs> uh, it's based upon covenant, not based upon works. God says in Exodus 6 verse 8, he says, I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, I will give it to you as a possession because I am the Lord. It's not about you. It's based upon a promise that God made in the past. So oftentimes we think that salvation is about us. And we take ourselves too seriously. And we have, hear me, undue guilt and undue pride. This week, there was a, a Florida lifeguard named Tomas Lopez. He made news for simply doing his job. And evidently, he did it too well. He was sitting on his chair. You know those high chairs that the lifeguards sit on. I don't understand it, but, but he was sitting on this high bench, listening to music, chilling, doing his job, when a beachgoer ran up to him and told him that somebody was drowning. It happens every day on the beach. Like I said, he made news, not for saving someone, but for getting fired while doing it. You see, the company policy said that lifeguards cannot go beyond the perimeter of the beach that's outside the zone, in an area where signs warns visitors to swim at their own risk, even though he was violating policy. Lopez ran into the ocean toward the struggling man and pulled him ashore. He said, at that point, I knew I was going to be fired. I knew that I had broken a rule. In those cases, he says we're supposed to call 911 and hope somebody shows up in time. This man did his job. He went beyond his job description. And he saved a man who broke the law. A man who did not ask to be saved. And he did it knowing the penalty. I don't know about you. But I'm glad that when Jesus saw me sinking deep in sin. I was far from the peaceful shore. 
I was very deeply stained within, and I was sinking to rise no more. And when the master of the sea, when he heard my despairing cry, he jumped up, forgot his life jacket and his rescue donut. All he had was his divinity and his humanity. And he left the boundaries of heaven, and he came to the Milky Way. And as he approached earth, the devil said, you're entering my zone. You're invading upon my world. But Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And while I was drowning, he jumped into Mary's womb and was born of a virgin. When I needed CPR, he died on the hill of Golgotha. And when he came out of the borrowed tomb, he breathed life into my lungs. His divinity reached my gasping humanity. His oxygenated blood began pumping through my ventricles and atria. And they tried to discourage him, tried to make him turn around. But he said, I'm going to save them come hell or high water. He says, I would rather be in hell with them than in heaven without them. It's not business, devil, it's personal. When you touch them, you're touching the apple of my eye. They might be great sinners. They might be slaves and not know who they are. But when I show up and save them, I know the cost and I know the penalty. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? God promising land that doesn't belong to them. And he promises it while they don't have it. He asked the question, has any God ever done something like that? Made one nation by taking it out of another, by testings, by signs, and by wonders, and even by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by some great and awesome deeds, like the things the Lord, your God, did for you when you were in Egypt. And he did it before your very eyes. Hear me. You don't need to plagiarize faith. You don't have to cut and paste Tim Tebow's faith. But you can knock on heaven's door and have a relationship with God for yourself. You don't need a borrowed faith. Quoting books and Sabbath school teachers and books and magazines that you read when you were a kid. You don't need an inherited faith when you go to college or an ascribed faith or a cultural faith. You don't need secondary sources. What you need is a personal God who speaks directly to you and who saves you when you call. And every time he does it, he said, it's not business, it's personal. It's not justice, it's personal. It's not forensic. It's personal. One of my favorite reality shows is Undercover Boss. I don't do a lot of reality shows because most of it isn't reality. It's scripted. But Undercover Boss is a reality show that came out a couple of years ago. And as the title suggests, the boss of some company or organization went undercover. The premise of the show is that the head honcho in charge, the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the person who started it, he would take off his, his three-piece suit and tailored shirts 
and he would take the lowest office in his own organization. And he would go by an alias. So when people asked him his name, he would make up some name and he would make up a backstory. So he took an office that wasn't his, trying to find out the inner workings of his own organization. He went undercover to find out what the janitors and what auxiliary staff actually thought of him. And every episode, you would see the CEO who's making multiple millions of dollars on the street with janitors, cleaning bathrooms and vacuuming carpets, listening with his hand on the pulse of his own organization, eating in the break room out of the vending machine. When they ask you, what's your name? I'm Jack. I don't have the degrees behind my name. Where, where you come from? I don't come from a good family. I, I come from Harlem. He will make up a history. And at the end of every episode, the people who, who, who worked beside him, not knowing who he was, was summoned to the headquarters where it was revealed to them his real name, his real office, and his real intentions. And oftentimes, they could not believe it when he took off the janitor's outfit and put back on his suit. He was the undercover boss. I don't know about you, but I know another story like that. There was a CEO, not of an earthly organization, but he was the head of heaven. And he said, I'm going to become an undercover savior. I want to know what it's like to be a human being. And he came incognito. The people who knew that he were coming were the people who were prepared for his coming. But when he showed up, he didn't come in a Bentley. When he showed up, he didn't come in a limousine. He came wrapped in swaddling clothes. But when they looked at him, they didn't know they were looking at the face of God. And they asked him, where do you come from? He said, I come from the back streets of Nazareth. And when he told them where he came from, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Paul says that God implanted himself into the human race. And he became a seed for all of humanity. And he went undercover, not just to live our lives, but to save us from the penalty of our lives. And when he revealed his true identity, we said, Jesus, you must be out of your mind. We called him a demon. We called him a Samaritan. We said, I know your father and your mother. You're not who you say you really are. Uh, but, but, but when he came back on the third day, the people that he worked with, the people who did not believe his undercover operation, hear me, he did not exact vengeance on them. Jesus became the undercover boss for two reasons. One, to show us what God is like. And to two, to gain our confidence and establish a personal relationship. And if you want to say, that's a good deal, I want that undercover boss in my life. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. The undercover Savior has come into your neighborhood. He knows where you live. 
whether you live in a small studio or a 3,000 square foot ranch house, he knows where you live. He knows what it's like to be a slave. So when he says, I'm the Lord your God, you can take him at his word because he says it's personal. And if you need special prayer this morning, I invite you to come to the front. I'll pray a special prayer just for you. You want God to be a personal God for you. You've been in Egypt for so long. And you've forgotten your identity and your purpose. The world tells you that you're a slave. But God says you're a son and a daughter. It's not about you being good or bad. You do not have to get good before you get God. You do not have to obey the commandments before God can accept you. If you want that deal, come to the front. I'll pray a special prayer just for you. And if you doubt to believe it, just look at the one undercover boss. His name is Jesus. He became human for you. He knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to be tempted in the dark recesses of your mind. And he says, I speak to you where you are in a language that you can understand. Is there one more? You want God to be a personal God who destroys not just the cobwebs in your life, but he snatches the spider by its throat and breaks its neck, and he will never return again. Is there one more? You want God to be a personal God. If you've been trying to keep the commandments without understanding verse 1 and verse 2, you're going to fail. Because it does not begin with you being good. It begins with God reaching you when you're bad. Is there one more? You can still come. You want God to be a personal God. You don't need a cookie-cutter faith. You don't need a borrowed or plagiarized faith. You want to know God for yourself. You want him to speak to you. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for looking beyond our faults and seeing our need. Even at our worst, when we're bleeding, when we've soiled our diapers, and you see us in the corner of the orphanage, you pick us up and say, I want that baby. I know that they have some congenital diseases. I know that they'll have a short lifespan but I will clean them up and give them a new name and I will adopt them as a son and a daughter. I already know what's inside of them. So when I bring them to my house and when they soil their diapers again and they begin to cry, wondering will mommy and daddy accept me? God, go to them and let them know it's personal. That you can clean us up and our name has never changed. We are still adopted as sons and daughters because it's personal. Father, if there's some people here, they've been in Egypt professionally. Father, give them favor like Joseph with their manager, with their supervisor. May they prosper where they live. 
and where they work and where they have their being. And Father, if there's some people who need to be freed from the house of Egypt and the land of bondage, Father, I ask that you do it now. Give a cease and desist, a restraining order to the devil. Wait now in the name of Jesus. If you need God to be your personal God, just respond by saying amen. amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.